Well, special uh, welcome if you are new or visiting to Ocean View. And uh, we have been doing a summer series entitled Astonishing Jesus, looking at different aspects of who Jesus Christ is in his character, his person, his work. And we've been using the image of a diamond. A diamond has all the different facets and it captures the light and scatters the light. And so we've been discovering there are so many facets to who Jesus Christ is. The first week, we looked at Jesus' compassion. Second week, we looked at the toughness of his character and will. Third week, we looked at his incredible love, just flows out of him like an unending river. And today, we're going to turn our attention to the moment that seemed like a no-win scenario. Two groups, the strictly religious Pharisees and the followers of King Herod joined forces in order to try and trap Jesus. And the absolute astounding brilliance of Jesus that he shows in his reply has only added and, and deepened my admiration for who Jesus Christ is. And I hope by the time we're done this morning, it will do the same for you. Well, as I said, this morning's passage in Matthew 22 revolves around Jesus, these two groups attempting to verbally trap him. I had a little experience with being verbally trapped when I was a kid. I was nine years old, playing soccer, and uh, in the midst of the game, collided with another kid, spun around, fell down, and twisted my ankle. So after the game, my mom takes me to St. Mary's Hospital in Seashelt, and uh, the nurse comes in, and they put me in one of those little curtained-off areas, and she says, okay, we're going to do something called an ultrasound on your ankle. And that was new to me. I'd never seen one before. And so she puts a little gel on my ankle, and then she's got the little wand, and and she begins to rub it on there. And after a couple moments, she looks at me and says, so does anything feel any different? Can you feel this? And I could certainly feel the gel and the rubbing. And I thought maybe my ankle felt a little different. I was like, yeah, I think I do. And she smiles and looks at me and says, okay, now I'm going to turn it on. I guess it was her little joke. She was going to have fun with a kid. Uh, and I remember being so like embarrassed, ashamed, whatever. It's an interesting feeling to be verbally trapped, isn't it? You know, that's essentially what happened to Christ, except the stakes were so much higher. The risk for Jesus was a thousand times. So we're going to dive in. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 17. I encourage you if you have your print Bible. Open that now. The verses also be on the screen. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, the followers of Herod. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then. What is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So right away we can see that these two groups, the Pharisees and the followers of Herod, are conspiring together to try to flatter and entrap Jesus. We might wonder, how did these two groups 
come to be working together. It seems really odd. Well, there's four things that are kind of leading up to this. Number one, Jesus was getting more and more popular. He had just come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the shouts and the acclaims of the crowd. This was a royal entry. It was obvious to the crowds that Jesus was, hopefully, the Messiah, the King they had been waiting for. But the real truth was Jesus didn't come to be the king of one nation or one people group. He came to be the king over all who will willingly follow him across cultures, peoples, kingdoms, down through the millenniums of time. So the supporters of Herod see Jesus as a potential threat. They think this guy's trying to be the new king. Everyone knows he has preached to crowds of thousands his reputation as an amazing healer, is growing. The rumor mill is working overtime. These two groups see Jesus as a challenge and a threat, and He must be stopped. Number two, Jesus has just told His most direct and offensive parable aimed at them. The parable of the tenants. We see their reaction in Matthew 21. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held he was a prophet. These guys are angry. They're mad. They're ticked off. They want to hit back. They want to try to discredit Jesus. All right, number three. The very groups asking the question is made up of two sides wanting opposite answers. The followers of Herod want Jesus to say, yes, pay the tax, because that will mean he approves of King Herod. The Pharisees, on the other hand, resented having to pay this tax to a foreign ruler. All the more because Caesar, this ruler, demanded honor and laid claim to titles that belong to God alone. In the eyes of the strictly religious Pharisees, the emperor in Rome who demanded this tribute was a blasphemer. So they want Jesus to say, no, definitely do not pay the tax. But Jesus can't make both sides happy. It's a trap. Finally, number four, both groups want evidence to either have Jesus arrested and killed or to see him lose his popularity for the crowds to abandon him. You see, if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, then the Pharisees can say, you see, everyone, he really is on the side of the Romans. He's with the foreign power oppressing our nation. Don't follow him. He's betraying us. If Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, then the followers of Herod can say, he's trying to start a rebellion. Herod, let's arrest this guy. Let's get him dealt with. He is going to start a huge amount of trouble. All right, so now we know the motivation for them to try to trap Jesus. But they start off in a pretty sneaky underhanded way don't they they give him three compliments they attempt to go down the route of flattery they try to butter jesus up if you notice there was three specific compliments 
Number one, teacher, they said, you are a man of integrity. Number two, they said, you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And finally, number three, you aren't swayed by others. You're very impartial. Three nice compliments. Three attempts at flattery. Now, if some group from our community came into my office and sat down in my office and said, Darren, you're, you're a man of integrity. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And you're very impartial. I'd be like, wow, thank you. And if they had some sort of other plans or they were trying to trap me, I think I'd probably fall for it. But not Jesus. He sees right through what these people are trying to do. And he calls them out on it. You know, if we are dead honest with ourselves, most of us don't mind a little flattery. One person in history who loved flattery was King Louis XIV of France. That guy was a bit of a pompous nutcase, but he loved the adoring crowds. Now I want you to introduce a guy who worked for him, Francois Fenelon. And Fenelon was a Catholic priest who had worked his way up through the hierarchy all the way to the position of archbishop. And he was constantly around the French palace. He was interacting with the king and all the royal advisors. Finally, they gave him the job of educating the future king, the Duke of Burgundy. So at seven years old, they handed over the Duke to Fenelon and said, train him, teach him, instruct him, mold him into being the next great king. Apparently, he did a great job. Even a guy who disliked Fenelon, Louis de Rouvois, admitted that when Fenelon became the Duke's tutor, the Duke was a spoiled, violent child. When Fenelon left him, the Duke had learned self-control. He had learned all the lessons necessary to form his character to be the next king. So now you know who these two characters are, King Louis XIV and Francois Fenelon. Well, one day, it's a Sunday morning, King Louis walks in with his royal retinue into the chapel in the palace, expecting to have the room filled with people in a Sunday service. There is absolutely no one there except Francois Fenelon. And the king demands, what is going on? Where are the people? Why is church empty? And Francois Fenelon looked at him and said, Your Majesty, I published publicly that you would not come to church today in order that Your Majesty might see who serves God in truth and who flatters the king. You know, flattery might work on a French king, but it certainly didn't work on Jesus. Let's move on to verses 18 to 21 where Jesus calls them out on their verbal trap. Verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus asked for a denarius. So that's a Roman coin made of silver. Now, there was probably in circulation at that time two probable choices. One would be a coin from Caesar Augustus, the father, when Jesus was born, with the Christmas accounts tell us he was born in the reign of Caesar Augustus. 
or his son, Caesar Tiberius. By the time Jesus' public ministry is happening, this is the son has taken over as Caesar. Either way, the coins were pretty interesting. The Tiberius coin shown here shows his head on one side, and then on the flip side, it shows him on a throne with uh, robes of a priest on. So, and there's the two sides. So the first side with his head, this is the inscription. In Latin, it said, Ti Caesar Divi Augustus, which translated means Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. You can see why that's making the Pharisees angry. That's a direct appeal that Caesar is somehow God. On the flip side, it said Pontiff Maximum, which means highest priest. The tension in that crowd must have been enormous. The general crowd must have been on edge. Which way will Jesus go? How will he answer this? Will he say it's right to pay the taxes? Or no, we shouldn't. The, the two groups that are there, the Pharisees and the followers of Herod, they must have thought, you know what? No matter which way he answers, we're going to win. There's no way out of this no-win scenario. I think Jesus would have likely held the coin up for the crowd to see. May have even pointed to it when he said, whose image is this? And whose inscription is this? It probably felt like time slowed down in that moment. It's like when you watch a slow motion replay of a baseball fielder, an outfielder running for that wall, and the ball's coming, and he leaps. Is he going to catch it, or is it going to go over his head for a home run? Which way will Jesus answer? Remember, the followers of Herod can't wait for him to say, yes, pay the tax, and watch the Jewish crowd get angry in response, feeling like Jesus would be betraying them. The news will spread. He will lose his popularity. The Pharisees can't wait for him to say, no, don't pay the tax. And then they can run and tell the Roman soldiers that he's starting a rebellion. Telling the crowds not to pay the taxes. Jesus will get arrested. This seems like there is no way out. Have you ever felt that way in your life? You're caught in the middle of a no-win situation. I want to remind you this morning that when you bow your head to pray in the worst moments in life that seems like there's no way out, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God brings this passage to your mind. This account from the Gospel of Matthew. Because you know what? You are about to pray to a Savior who knows the way out of no-win scenarios. You're about to pray to the Son of God who faced down hostile groups and He knows what it's like to feel the immense pressure of a no-win situation, the sweat dripping down the back of your neck. You're about to pray to Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, one in essence with the Father and the Spirit, who has at His command all the wisdom of the triune God. Are you ready to hear Jesus' brilliant answer? Let's pick it up in verse 21. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. 
When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. My third and final point is entitled, Brilliant Answer. I spent some time this morning talking about the denarius, the coin, with the image of Caesar stamped into it. So we get the part where Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. The coins have the image of Caesar stamped right on them. Now, if you are listening this morning here in our auditorium or online, and you've been going to church for a long time, you're familiar with the Bible, I want you to put your thinking cap on this morning and ponder for a second what that second part means and give to God what is God's. Here's a hint. It follows the same pattern. While those folks who have gone to church for a long time are pondering and thinking about that, I want to talk to everyone who's brand new or feels like, you know what, I'm at the beginning of this journey. I don't hardly know much about the Bible. I want to say to you this morning, don't be intimidated. It's a process of learning just like everything else in life. But when we do it, it is so good, so enriching, so deepening to keep both our brains and our hearts engaged. And the longer we follow Jesus, the more we learn. All right, everybody else, did you figure it out yet? Here's the answer. Genesis 1, 26, 27, way back at the beginning of the Bible. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We as human beings are created in the image of the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Just like Caesar's image is stamped into the coin, the image of God is stamped into us as human beings. Jesus is saying, sure, pay your taxes to the government of the country that you live in. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to Revenue Canada what is Revenue Canada's. Although possibly they take a little more than they should. Never mind. But give yourself your very being made in the image of God in love and service back to God. Think about that moment when someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of the, all of them in the Bible? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Not brilliant? So amazing. William Hendrickson, a Bible scholar, had this to say about the brilliance Jesus shows. He says, one hardly knows what to admire more in Christ's reaction, whether it is his penetrating insight into the hearts and motives of men or his marvelous mental alertness in so quickly giving an answer that establishes a principle whereby every person should be guided in the proper relationship between the earthly and heavenly kingdoms. You know what, everybody, this morning? That is the Savior we are following. Jesus, whose brilliance and insight cuts right into the deepest place of our heart. Jesus, who walked out of a no-win scenario, the champion. 
Jesus, who simultaneously established a proper way for his followers to live in this world, no matter what country or nation or time period they find themselves in down through history. So what do I want us to walk away with this morning? Number one, a deeper growing admiration for Jesus Christ. He was phenomenally brilliant and wise. Number two, a challenge for us to give to God what is God's. Just to get us thinking along the right lines, I've got some suggestions this morning. For our young adults, maybe you're at work. Maybe you put in a good long day at work. It hits 5 o'clock. The bell rings. It's time to go home. You're cleaning up, getting ready, grabbing your stuff. And all of a sudden, your boss says, hey, that huge stack of boxes, I need you to take them out to the storage unit in the back. You got a choice. A selfish approach says, boss, I would love to, but I was, I was just heading out. I'll, I'll do that tomorrow. But if you want to give a response to your boss that honors God with your physical strength and say, you know what? No worries. I'll be happy to do that. Teenagers, you've been out having fun. Maybe down at Transfer Beach paddleboarding. You come home, you're tired. You flop onto the couch and your dad shows up and says, hey, now that you're home, I need some help cleaning out the garden beds, doing a yard waste run to Peerless Road. If you go with the selfish approach, you're going to say, oh, dad, I'm so tired. Can you not ask me this time? Now, if you want to give a response to your dad that honors God with your physical strength as a teenager, then say, dad, I'm tired, but you know, I understand our whole family has to chip in. Yes, I'm coming. And my high school friends, dad will be in a great position to hit him up for a Slurpee on the way home. Okay, so you kind of get the idea of giving to God what's God's with our physical energy, our strength. What, what would it mean to, to give to God what is God's with our heart and our soul? I was thinking of young moms this week. You've had an exhausting day with your children. You finally have everyone down for bed. You've done the story time, the drinks of water, that whole routine. You finally have time to yourself. And you kind of take a sigh and you think of that binge-worthy series on Netflix that's calling your name. And that's great. Go watch your show. But what do you do for the five minutes while the kettle is boiling and you're making yourself a cup of tea? Here's my challenge. Grab your Bible, turn to Psalm 46.10 and read the words that challenge us to be still and know that I am God. Close your eyes. Meditate on that verse until the kettle is done. Do nothing but think about who God is in His triune nature. Father, Holy Spirit, Son, one God. Separate in their, separate in their person, but one in their essence. Think about how the Father loves the Son with a love so pure and powerful. Think about how the, the Spirit brings glory to the Son. Think about how the Spirit loves the Father. Think about how we are created in the image of God. Think about the ways that we reflect the divine nature, how the, the love of the Trinity overflows and, and fills up our hearts. By that time, the kettle will be done. You can go make your tea. And I guarantee you will feel a little bit more calm, a little bit more centered, and a little bit more at peace. 
one tiny way we can give to God what is God's. Enough examples. You know the scenarios in your own life. But my challenge for us today is to obey Jesus' command. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. But even more importantly, give to God what is God's. Your whole self, your body, mind, soul, and heart. The brilliance of Jesus. Study it, ponder it, live it. It will change your life. Amen?